everybody. Welcome to Women in the Word. It's great to be here with you. My name's Amy Foster, part of your teaching team, and it's just a delight to study God's Word with you. You know, I, I wonder if some of you have been thinking through, as we, we've titled this study journey, maybe it's caused you to think a little bit about vacations and travels in your past. And you know, the truth is we all want favorable travel conditions and favorable travel uh, plans. We don't want any of our journeys to include disaster, do we? But uh, sometimes disaster happens, right? I, I bet you all have some great vacation misfire stories you could tell. Years ago, I had carefully planned a summer vacation to the uh, South Carolina beach, and it was our only vacation of the year. It was also using every penny of our me meager little travel budget, and for the first time, I was traveling with a one-year-old. So there were lots of details to consider, and I pretty much exhausted the planning. I had executed a great vacation plan with lots of details, but there was one thing I didn't plan for. About 36 hours before we got in our car and left, the weatherman started talking about a disturbance out in the Atlantic Ocean. And we listened, and about 12 hours later, they started calling that disturbance a hurricane. And about the time we were packing the car, they announced that the path of the hurricane was headed to the South Carolina coast. Now, I don't know if this is good or bad, but here's something about me. I'm a planner and I stick to my plan. <laughs> so we got in the car and we drove to South Carolina. I don't think we were just being foolish. I think we knew possibly that storm could settle down out there in the ocean. Possibly the path of the storm could change. Um, I didn't feel the least bit guilty asking that God would direct that storm to some other beach and some other poor people would be hit by it. <laughs> um, it became clear that we, we were not traveling under good travel conditions. Um, but we went ahead, we enjoyed the beach the first day. The water was warm, the skies were sunny, the crowds were friendly, but everything changed on the second day. There was no sun. The waves were huge and powerful. There were no crowds on the beach. Actually, there were signs on all the roadways that said, hurricane evacuation route. Go that way. Flee, flee. And every few hours, our family was calling, very subtly reminding us we were traveling with the first and then only grandchild. So we, we did get to enjoy the beach just a little bit, but on that vacation, there was absolutely no peace at all. We stayed up late at night listening to the weather forecast. We woke up early and turned that forecast right back on. Ultimately, we did have to pack up the car, drive inland where we had no reservation and no plan at all. We were unprotected, defenseless, without peace. We experienced anxiety, fear, and worry. And there were only three of us on that trip. Can you imagine the magnitude of disaster when you travel with more than two million people? It's almost impossible to imagine, isn't it? Can you imagine the scale of disasters that can be so big with that many people? 
But God has not called his people out into disaster, has he? He's called them out to bless them, to live with them. He wants to use, uh, use them in order to bring blessing to the entire world. He doesn't want a disaster. He wants them to travel with the very best travel conditions. And he showed us exactly what those travel conditions are. They line up perfectly in these chapters today as they're moving. The children of Israel are moving from Mount Sinai and they're approaching the promised land. And so what I want us to do as we consider their story and their travel conditions is to always keep in mind we have so much in common with the children of Israel. I really think um, all of us are in their number. We look a lot like them. And the truth is we're travelers today. The Bible regularly describes us as pilgrims. And that means people who are on the move, just like they were on the move. And if you consider the Israelites had left something behind, they'd left Egypt, they'd left their old life as slaves, and they were moving forward to the promised land where they would live with God. And we're a lot like that. We have left the world behind. We've left the world where we were enslaved to sin, and we are moving forward too. But we're not going to a specific place yet. We're not going to arrive until Jesus calls us home. But all through our life, we're journeying. We are journeying to God every single day, leaving the past behind and journeying to God. And we're doing that through Jesus. We're learning to stop living by the world's old way of life and to live the Jesus way of life. John 14, 6, Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So we're pilgrims just like the Israelites. For Israel and for us today, there are some tra uh, travel conditions that God has established that are absolutely perfect, and God's travel conditions bring blessing, not disaster, and we're gonna see that as we look at this today. So where are we in the story? Let's just catch up a little bit. Remember, they've left Egypt. God has carried them out miraculously. They land at Sinai, and they've been there almost a whole year. While they're there, they've received the instructions, and they've constructed the tabernacle exactly as God just, uh, described it to them. Then when they get it all set up, God's presence enters the holy place and the cloud is there visible above it. God teaches his people the laws about being clean and unclean and how they were to live in his holy presence. Then he designates and he consecrates priests and Levites to serve in the temple. They celebrate the Passover, remembering God's mighty deliverance of them out of Egypt and all of that. Then they take a census and they count all the men who are able to fight. And the last thing that happens after that is God instructs Aaron, bless the people. Stand over them and proclaim a blessing over them. And again, the people are reminded in this blessing, he is a generous, loving, merciful God. He wants to bless them. He wants to protect them. He wants to put his name on them. And he wants his face to shine on them. God wants blessing, not disaster in their life. And at this moment, the future never looked brighter for the children of Israel. The travel conditions are absolutely perfect. Now all they need to know is exactly how they're going to move, when they're going to move, what direction they're going to go, and God is gonna show that to them. So open your Bibles to Numbers chapter nine, and we will begin reading in verse 15. 
On the day that the tabernacle was set up, the cloud covered the tabernacle, the tent of the testimony, and at evening it was over the tabernacle like the appearance of fire until morning. And so it was always. The cloud covered it by day and the appearance of fire by night. And whenever the cloud lifted from over the tent, after that the people of Israel set out. And in the place where the cloud settled down, there the people of Israel camped. At the command of the Lord, the people of Israel set out, and at the command of the Lord, they camped. As long as the cloud rested over the tabernacle, they remained in camp. So God tells them how they will travel. He will lead them. He's not going to give them a lot of directions in advance. He will lead them each and every day through this cloud. The cloud will show them both the time that they are to leave, and it will show them the direction that they are going to go. So all they needed to do was watch the cloud and follow the cloud. We know that the cloud is a a visible symbol of God. It's a symbol of his presence with them. It's a symbol of his power and his glory and his protection. And we have to remember this is the same cloud that all night stayed as a defensive barrier between Israel and the Egyptian army that was pursuing them before they crossed the Red Sea. They know the mighty protective power of God in this cloud. And the cloud is also a reminder of his grace because he will always be with them. At any point in this journey, if they wondered if God had abandoned them, all they had to do was look to the sky. You know, in the bright daytime blue sparkly sky, they look up and there is this glorious white cloud over them. And in the frightening dark nighttime sky, all they have to do is look up and they see the magnificent fiery cloud over them, constantly reassuring them that the presence of God was with them. So now as they prepare to leave, the the cloud is hovering over the holy place in the tabernacle, and when it's time to go, that cloud will miraculously lift higher up. It'll be so high that it'll be visible to the furthermost edge of this large camp, and it is a large camp. It's probably about 12 square miles. The cloud will lift, and they'll all be able to see this symbol that God is telling them, it's time to go. But God isn't just telling them it's time to go. He's telling them, and you're going with me. They're going, and God will always be with them. So don't you think they were pretty anxious to get to the promised land by now? It's been a year since they left Egypt, an entire year camping in the desert. I know I would be anxious to leave. I'm I'm sure they're pretty anxious, but we're told that they followed that cloud patiently and diligently. If the cloud rested for a day, they rested. If it rested two days, they stayed put. If it rested a month or longer, they stayed put. They would not move without that cloud, without God directing them that it was time to go. This is a unique time in Israel's history when their obedience is total and complete and how that must have pleased the Lord. At this time, there is complete harmony between God's people and God, and it's a time of great blessing. So as they obediently follow God and watch that cloud, we're reminded one of the characteristics of God is that he is omniscient, meaning he has all knowledge. He knows everything. He knows everything from the past. He knows everything in the present, and he knows everything that's coming in the future. That means he knows all the weather conditions out there in that dangerous desert. That means he knows the political conditions. He knows which warring tribes are out there about to have a skirmish. skirmish. He knows where there are scouts and bandits hiding along the way. God knows all of that. 
And God is never going to take his people into a place that he doesn't want them to be. So when Israel follows God through the cloud, they benefit from all of God's knowledge, all of his omniscience. And it's the same way for us. When we choose to be obedient to God and follow his direction, we get all the benefit of the one who knows everything. He knows more than we do, and he tells us which way to go. So that's what they do. They obediently follow this cloud, taking them to the very blessed places that God has chosen for them. We will see that the best places that God chooses aren't always the easiest places. Sometimes there'll be places where they're a little afraid about water and food, but they are exactly the place that omniscient God, where he has guided them. So the cloud shows them God's timing and it shows them God's direction. And next, God tells them exactly how they will pack up camp and march out. Read with me beginning in chapter 10. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, make two silver trumpets of hammered work you shall make them. And you shall use them for summoning the congregation and for breaking camp. And when both trumpets are blown, all the congregation shall gather themselves to you at the entrance of the tent of meeting. But if they blow only one, then the chiefs, the heads of the tribes of Israel, shall gather themselves to you. When you blow an alarm, the camps that are on the east side shall set out. And when you blow an alarm the second time, the camps that are on the south side shall set out. An alarm is to be blown whenever they are to set out. All right, so God is telling them that he is going to direct their movement and their marching through these trumpets. Most likely, two trumpets, most likely they had some kind of a distinction between them. Maybe they had varied tones so that the people could recognize when they were hearing two trumpets or one. They were made for hammered silver, um, and we know even today that's the best material to use if you're making a trumpet. It produces the clearest, most beautiful sound. We don't know exactly what these trumpets looked like, but we suspect that they were long, um, not curved. That was the way trumpets were in Egypt. And we've got a slide. I want you to take a look at this. Um, this is a, a, a scene from a famous ark in Rome. It's called the Ark of Titus. And you see in the masonry here, they're depicting a scene. And this is the victory march after Rome came in and conquered Jerusalem. And remember, they ransacked the temple in 70 AD. And this is a scene of the victorious Roman soldiers carrying off all the expensive items from inside the temple. And there's some trumpets up there. We're gonna enhance this picture just a little bit so you can see the trumpets. See them? Yeah, they're gold. They were actually silver, but you can see they, they may have looked something like that, these beautiful silver trumpets that were used. And there were two of them. It's possible that there were two because Aaron had two sons at this time, and this was gonna be the job for these priests. They were going to blow the trumpets. And if you know much of your Old Testament history, you know Israel continued to use trumpets in this way at feast times and celebration times and when they were marching into battle. And if, if you study the Old Testament, you'll see the number of trumpets increases all through the Old Testament. There'll be scenes where there are many, many trumpets. It may be that's because the number of priests increased also as that family grew and multiplied. And I think that maybe God has an affinity for the sound of a trumpet because God uses trumpets a lot in his story and God will use a trumpet again in the future. First Thessalonians 4.16 says, the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel and the sound of the trumpet of God. 
So out in the desert, God is going to use these trumpets. They'll be blown to call the people together. A long blast from both trumpets, that will signal everybody in the camp, gather together at the entrance of the tent of meeting. A long blast from one trumpet, that would mean just the leaders, the leaders of the tribes come gather together. And there would be a completely different sound, an alarm. It was probably a short blast or maybe a series of short blasts. And an alarm would signal them, break camp pack up and get ready to, to head out in an orderly fashion. Now, ladies, this is a big camp, and I kept wondering how in the world would the people be able to hear those trumpet sounds everywhere? One commentary actually quoted a scientist, and it said that in the pure atmosphere like the desert, sound is conveyed easily through the air. The trumpet sound would actually reverberate among the valleys of the Sinai Hills. I don't know, that's hard for me to imagine, um, but I'm guessing that's true. Um, I am sure of this. The people had to train their ears to listen for those trumpets. They had to train their ears to recognize when they heard one trumpet or two. They had to train their ears to recognize, is that a blast telling us to come together or is that the alarm telling us to pack up and go? They had to be diligent about listening all the time, listening for God's instructions. And when they heard the alarm to break camp, they did. It tells us that the first alarm, the eastern side would pack up and head out first. The second blast, the southern side would pack up. We're kind of presuming that there was a third and a fourth blast. The scripture doesn't tell us that, but there are some historical writings that talk about the four trumpet blasts there. So I think that's probable that there were additional calls. What we see with these trumpet blasts, this is God's desire for order and God's desire for safety instead of chaos. You know, I don't know if you've ever recently been in an airport terminal waiting for a flight, and the scene always goes something like this. All the seats are full with people waiting for a flight, and the announcer comes on and she says, in one hour we will be boarding flight 231. We will begin with boarding group one. And what happens? Every single person in that waiting room gets up and starts moving to the line. They're not all boarding group one, and you know that. And they move kind of slowly, but you can tell they're maneuvering, they're watching, they're trying to figure out how they're gonna get to the front of the line. You know it's true because you're probably doing it with them. <laughs> we haven't changed, we haven't changed a bit. So I want you to imagine you've been camped in the same spot for days in the desert, you're eager to get moving again, you hear that trumpet blast, and what do you do? I'm getting at the front of the line. That's what I would do. I'm sure they were thinking, let's get up here in front because in the back it's dusty and it's dirty. Or let's get up here in front. We'll be the first to see the promised land or we'll be the first to get to fresh water and fill our canteens. And I know if I were in this group, I'd be thinking one thing. I'm gonna line myself up right under that cloud so I'm traveling in the shade out here in the hot <laughs> desert. It's totally what I would do. But this group traveling through the desert is supposed to represent God to the world. And God is not a God of chaos, of striving, of social climbing, or self-promoting. The nation that bears God's name will not move like opportunistic, selfish men in the desert. Because of this order that God gives them, there will be great peace, there will be unity among the tribes, there will be safety, and most importantly, there will be 
honor for God's name. God will look good as they are moving through the desert in an orderly way, tribe by tribe, following God's instructions. So I'm wondering, have any of you ever faced a daunting decision and you thought if God would just put a big cloud in the sky and let it hover over the right decision I'm supposed to make, that would just be so great. It would be great to travel like the Israelites did. Well, God could do that today. He could guide us by a big cloud, but he doesn't seem to. He still has a direction and an order for our lives. He still has a perfect timing planned for all the things he wants us to experience. And he still asks us to follow his leadership. But it's not provided in a cloud anymore for us. It's provided right here in his word. This is what God has given us to use today. His word, he's told us in these 66 books all that we need to know about who he is and what he desires for us. He's told us what he wants us to believe. He's told us how he wants us to behave. He gives all of that to us in his word. Psalm 73, 24 says, you guide me with your counsel. And Psalm 119 says, your word is a lamp for my feet and a light on my path. And 2 Timothy 3.16, this is, this is a really unique translation. It's the Phillips. It says, all scripture is inspired by God, and it's useful for teaching the faith and correcting error, for resetting the direction of a man's life and training him in good living. So God's word guides the direction of our life. God's word tells us the next step to take and exactly when we should take it. God has given us all his direction already here, and it's perfect instruction for our journey. So we need to be familiar with God's word and be in it all the time because God has given this to us to give us perfect travel conditions, just like he gave the cloud to the Israelites. Now, maybe you've ever wondered, is God near? And the way the Israelites could just look up in the, cloud, in the sky and see the cloud and know that God was near. If you wonder if God is near, open these words and he will talk to you. He will speak directly to you in his words. He will have words of comfort. He will have words of correction. He will have words of encouragement and words of direction. He will speak directly to you through his word. I can honestly say that every hard decision I have ever made, every difficult emotion I have ever struggled with, every terrifying experience that has ever paralyzed me, I have found direction in God's word every single time. And God's word has never taken me to a place I wasn't supposed to be. It has always taken me to the safe place where God would mature me and grow me and give me an opportunity to glorify and honor him. So I can't encourage you enough to use the direction that God has given you. Now, wouldn't it also be nice if every time God wanted to get our attention or asks us to act, he would just blow a trumpet? I mean, wouldn't that just be great? If God spoke to us, it would be pretty hard to miss. Um, we will hear a trumpet one day, but for right now, God's not going to blow trumpets at us. He's going to ask us instead to listen to his Holy Spirit. John 14, 26 says, But the Advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. So the moment we put our faith in Jesus, God puts his spirit inside us. Jesus calls that spirit our helper who will be with us forever. And the work of the spirit is like the electric company. 
the Spirit turns on a light in our heart and in our soul. And all the truths of God that were in the darkness before that we couldn't understand and we couldn't apply, suddenly the light is on and we understand them and we can apply them to our lives. The Spirit helps us to know God's truth and the Spirit helps remind us of God's truth and the Spirit will prompt us just like a trumpet blast the exact same way, and the Spirit will always tell us we need to move in the direction of God. But just like Israel, we have to train our ears, don't we? We have to train our ears to recognize the sound of God's Holy Spirit because sometimes we hear things in our heart and in our mind that aren't God. Sometimes we just hear our own desires or we hear other bad advice we've received or to quote our pastor, Ted Kitchen, sometimes we just ate a bad burrito and there's a rumbling in our soul and that's not the Holy Spirit, is it? We have to learn how to recognize when the Spirit is urging us on. And here's the number one way you can recognize it. God's Spirit is always in unity with God's Word. Always, always, always. There's perfect harmony there. God's Spirit will never urge you to do something that's out of step with God's direction for your life in His Word. It will always match the Word. Oftentimes, I hear God's Spirit. It is His Word. The Spirit stirs up familiar verses, familiar chapters in me and speaks to me through God's Word. So if that's the way we're going to check the Spirit, we'd obviously do well to learn to listen to both God's Word and His Spirit. So often my prayer is actually a prayer to the Spirit. I ask the Holy Spirit to give me understanding. If I'm struggling with an emotion that I can't quite get my uh, understanding of or I can't quite deal with, I just ask the Spirit, will you help me understand this? Will you shine a light in my soul and help me understand what's going on? Or if I'm stuck in a sin pattern and I keep returning to the same sin even though I don't want to, I stop and I pray to the Spirit and I ask the Spirit, help me understand what I'm doing here. And the Spirit will speak. If you will pray and ask and be silent, the Spirit will speak and give you understanding in these things. And often, the Spirit reminds you of God's truth and God's word. And it's just like a trumpet blast. It's the Spirit inside you and inside me. He says, Amy, go a different direction. Go a different direction. I'm calling you toward God. So the perfect traveling conditions for Israel and for us begin with God's leadership. Israel had it. We have it today. They would only move when God said move. They would only go where that cloud directed them to go. And their movement would be all according to God's prescribed plan here. The trumpet sound would definitely communicate the plan. But the trumpet sound was also kind of a call to action. Because if the plan just sits out here and nobody executes the plan, then nothing happens, right? So the trumpet call required Israel to respond. And the people have to choose, will they respond with obedience to God? And in this instance, they do. They choose total obedience and they do exactly as God has said. Chapter 10, verse 11, we'll pick up their story. In the second year, in the second month, on the 20th day of the month, the cloud lifted from over the tabernacle of the testimony, and the people of Israel set out by stages from the wilderness of Sinai, and the cloud settled down in the wilderness of Paran. They set out for the first time at the command of the Lord by Moses." Okay, so we know they've just celebrated Passover, and that's the one-year anniversary of when God miraculously rescued them um, 
in Egypt. They celebrate that in the, uh, the first month of the second year. And remember those who were unable to celebrate the Passover because they were ceremonially unclean, they had another opportunity in the second month of the second year to celebrate Passover. And when that had been complete and everyone has celebrated Passover, the memory of God and his powerful deliverance and protection for all of them is so fresh in their mind. In that moment, God says it's time to go and the cloud moves and the trumpet sounds and the people begin their journey. They're journeying from the wilderness of Sinai. They're going north to the wilderness of Paran. And verses 14 through 28 show you exactly how they travel there, and I'm just going to give you an overview of it. They travel in perfect obedience. They follow God's plan precisely. We've got a slide up here. You can refer to this. You may recall our very first week we saw in Numbers chapter 2 that God told them exactly how the different tribes were to place themselves around the tabernacle when they camped, and God also told them exactly what order they would march in. So there wouldn't be no pushing and shoving to get to the front of the line here, and that's exactly what they do. So first the trumpet sounds, and Judah marches out with Issachar and Zebulun. And the sons of Gershon and Merari follow. Remember, they're carrying all the, all the parts of the tabernacle. They put them on the carts with oxen, and they follow behind. There would be a second trumpet blast, and then Reuben with Simeon and Gad would march out. And then who follows him? The Kohathites. Remember, they're carrying on poles all the furnishings from inside the tabernacle. Probably another trumpet blast here. Ephraim marches out with Manasseh and Benjamin. The last trumpet blast, Dan would march out with Asher and Naphtali. And we learn there in verse 33 that leading the whole thing, the ark, probably with Moses and Aaron and the priests, they move to the front of the procession and the cloud stays over the ark. And in all of this, this perfect order, we really do see God's wisdom and we see God's protection. You know, you remember how numbers started? It was a census. In each of these tribes, they counted the fighting men. And so if you look at the numbers, you can definitely see how God is creating protection here. He puts Judah, Judah at the front, Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun. If you add up all their fighting men, this is the biggest group. He puts the very biggest group in the front, certainly suggesting strength and protection. The second largest group was Dan, Asher, and Naphtali. That's who he puts in the back. Again, suggesting a mighty protective force around everyone in the middle, suggesting strength. But there's something else that's suggested here too. God is really showing mercy and grace. I want you to look at verse, the standard of the camp of the people of Dan, acting as the rear guard of all the camps. They set out for their companies. Okay, Dan is called the rear guard, and that's described as the gathering host, and this is such a beautiful image. This means that everybody under the standard of Dan, they're to come along at the back, and they're to gather the stragglers in. Anybody who's lagging behind Dan and the other tribes are gonna scoop them up. So who would be straggling in the back? Think about this. It would be anyone who was ceremonially unclean. That means they'd been ill or come in contact with an illness or a dead body. That would be where the mixed multitude was, the people who had joined Israel, but they're not Jewish, they're not Israelites. That would be where perhaps the infirmed are, the old, the ill, the weak, 
all of those people lagging behind, and this standard of Dan comes behind as a gathering host. You know, God describes himself as the shepherd who gathers his flock, and that's exactly what we can see in his use of a gathering host here. When I visualize this, it's like the big, strong arms of God Generous arms reaching out, pulling everybody who's weak and lonely and off on their own. He's pulling them in. Because in the nation of Israel, nobody's going to be left behind. And in the nation of Israel, no one is going to be discarded because of their age or their infirmity or their heritage. God puts a mighty rear guard behind, scooping them all up and keeping them safe. I'm going to remember that. That's a powerful image when I'm feeling discarded, when I'm feeling left behind, when I'm feeling like I don't belong to the big family of God. I'm going to remember that I do and that God is the one who puts a rear guard behind and he wants me pulled in with his family. So he is both protective and powerful here and he is tender and merciful and gracious and we see all of that in his marching orders here. This was the way they were always to march and this is the way they did always march. And God calls it a march. That's a military term and he really is looking at them like they are a military nation. They're, they're an army here. They follow God's orders perfectly and what we learn from that is obedience is a necessary travel condition. To obey means to arrange oneself under someone in a place of command. So I've altered that a little bit. It's to arrange myself under God. That's what they're doing here. They choose obedience, and we always have to stop and remember, I do anyway, obedience is the opposite of independence. It's not my plan, it's God's. It's not my timing, it's God's. I'm going to arrange myself under God. One theologian says, in all of the Old and the New Testament, obedience stands as the supreme test of faith in God. So I want us to stop and talk about obedience for a little bit here because that is a necessary condition as we travel on our journey. But I don't ever want us to focus on the behavior because obedience is so much more than the behavior, isn't it? Really, obedience starts in our heart and the behavior is just an overflow of what's already in our heart. If our hearts believe that God knows everything and gives the very best instructions, we'll follow him. If our heart believes that God has already rescued and done such a gracious work for us, we will thankfully follow him. If our heart believes he's holy, we will easily submit to him. So obedience always has to start in our heart first. God said to the Old Testament in Deuteronomy 5.1, he says this to Israel, hear Israel the decrees and laws I declare in your hearing today. Learn them, be sure to follow them. And then all through the Old Testament, he shows us when they were obedient, they were protected and at peace, and they were abiding with God. And then Jesus says in the New Testament, if you keep my commandments, you abide in my love. That's from John 15. So God directs us today through his word and his spirit, but we all get to make the choice how we will respond to his word and his spirit. How will we choose to be either independent or be obedient to his commands? You know, I made a decision a long time ago that I was going to let obedience be the rule of my life. And sometimes that's real easy to do because sometimes 
choices are very clear cut because God has specifically said some things are out of bounds. So if it's a choice to lie or cheat or steal, obviously I know what God wants me to do there. I know to stay away from the things that are out of bounds. And sometimes it's also an easy choice because God tells us good things that he wants us to do. If I know my choice is to bless someone with my words, to forgive, to be gracious, to honor God, that's an easy choice also. But other times we face choices that aren't so clear cut. Maybe we have two or three options. None of them are in the category of sin or disobedience. And I'm gonna be honest with you. I've had times in my life when I've just been paralyzed and unable to make a choice because I couldn't figure out which choice was the obedient choice. And that's when I think it's really helpful to go back to the idea that obedience isn't just about your behavior. Obedience is about your heart. And where is your heart in this instance? And when I get paralyzed like that and struggle to make a choice, I just start asking God, you know, what do you want in this? I've found that Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 is a good rule for life. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, submit to God or acknowledge God, and he will make your path straight. So when I have multiple choices and I can't figure out which one is obedient, I just ask God, how do I acknowledge you in this situation? How do I submit to you? Show me what you want. And I wait and I listen and the Spirit directs me. And then when I make that decision, I have peace. I have perfect peace because I don't have to worry about the outcome. I don't have to worry about the outcome because God says he's going to make the path straight. What he wants from me is a heart that is submitted to him, a heart that's acknowledging him, a heart that wants what he wants. And if I can give him that, he's going to straighten out the path for me. I don't ever need to think God is like the angry school teacher who's trying to catch me in a trick question. You know, those multiple choice questions full of double negatives that you just can't figure out what they're saying. God isn't trying to do that. He's not... excuse me, he's not trying to make obedience hard for us. So go back to your heart and get your heart submitted to God. Get your heart under God's authority. Make your decision and then trust God to straighten out the path for you. All right, for Israel, the cloud has moved, the trumpet has sounded. Moses needs to take care of one more thing before they leave Sinai. Read with me, excuse me, chapter 10, verse 29. And Moses said to, sorry, y'all, hang on just a minute. Okay. And Moses said to Hobab, the son of Reuel, the Midianite, Moses' father-in-law, we are setting out for the place of which the Lord said, I will give it to you. Come with us and we'll do good for you. For the Lord has promised good to Israel. All right, it's kind of confusing here. Some people aren't quite sure who Hobab is. Is he Moses' father-in-law or is he Moses' brother-in-law? His name appears kind of in a confusing way here, and it appears in several other Old Testament books. Um, Most people land on the idea that Hobab is Moses' brother-in-law. I'm not positive, so I'm just going to call him his in-law here. Moses is urging Hobab, his in-law, to join the people of Israel on the journey. Now, the reason we need to pay attention to the fact that he's an in-law, we have to remember Moses married a woman from Midian. Her name was Zipporah. Okay, she's from Midian. She's not an Israelite. She's not Jewish. So any of her family members, these in-laws, they're not Jewish people. They're not Israelites. They're from Midian as well. And twice, 
But Moses urges his in-law to stay with them and travel with them. And both times, it's really interesting, um, Moses is just proclaiming great faith here. He says, um, come to the land that the Lord has promised us. He doesn't call it Canaan. He doesn't define it by a geographic area. He focuses on the land that God has promised us. What he's wanting to do, I think he really wants to accomplish two purposes. Um, he asked Hobab to join them first because I think he thinks Hobab would be a valuable guide. Now Moses totally trusts God to direct them in the cloud, but this is the, hope, the area that Hobab is familiar with. This is his home turf. He would know where shade could be found. He would know where pasture lands for the animals could be. He would know where the water sources were. And in the, in the desert here, the wind can stir up and move sand drifts all the time. And I've regularly read that you can be right next to a water source in the desert and not see it because of a sand drift. It would be incredibly helpful to have someone on the journey with him who could point out the water. But I think Moses has another goal here. Moses wants Hobab to experience the goodness of God. He wants to invite Hobab and all the other in-laws into the blessings of God. We don't know from this passage if he agrees or not, but there's a, a passage in the book of Judges and a passage in the book of 1 Samuel that refers to this family with the Israelites. So I think we've got pretty good evidence that he did join them and he stayed with them. But what overshadows this whole invitation is Moses' complete trust in God. It's complete trust in the promises of God. We see that first. He doesn't call the land Canaan. He refers to it as the place that God said, I'm going to give you. In verse 29, he says, the Lord has promised good to Israel. In verse 32, he says, the good that the Lord will do to us, we will do to you. Did you hear any ifs in those statements? If God does good to us, if God gets us into the land, if God helps us win the battle, no, Moses is completely trusting the promises of God. Um, Isaiah 26.3 says, You keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. That's what we see from Moses here. He's not trusting in a place or a nation or a military victory. He's trusting in God, and he believes that God's promises are certain. And it's very hopeful, isn't it? It's so hopeful because he's trusting that God will do exactly what he said he's going to do. So we can learn this too. I'll be honest with you. I'm inclined to put my trust in God and. God and money in the bank. God and a good job. God and a good report from the doctor. God and my kids moving and growing like I want them to. I put my trust in lots of other things, and Moses isn't doing that here, and, and we know that all those other things, they're fragile, they're changing, they're fleeting. Those aren't things that can sustain our hope. Only God can sustain our hope. We need to just put all of our trust in him, and we can put our trust in all the promises he's made to us. So what are those promises? He's promised to forgive us of all of our sins if we trust in Jesus, He's promised to put his spirit in us. He's promised that his grace will be sufficient for everything he asks us to do. He's promised that we have an eternal inheritance and he's guarding and protecting it for us on our behalf. He's promised that he'll never leave us or forsake us. And he's promised that one day we'll be with him forever. Big promises made from a big God to you. We need to put our trust in those things, not houses and bank accounts and health reports. Just trust God. 
So Moses is trusting God. He's inviting other people to trust God with him. He's beginning the process of Israel bringing God's blessing to the rest of the world. Read with me in verse 33. And so they set out from the mount of the Lord on a three days journey, and the ark of the covenant of the Lord went before them three days journey to seek out a resting place for them. And the cloud of the Lord was over them by day whenever they set out from the camp. And whenever the ark set out, Moses said, Arise, O Lord, and let your enemies be scattered, and let those who hate you flee before you. And when the cloud rested, Moses said, Return, O Lord, to the ten thousand thousands of Israel. So the cloud lifts, the trumpet blasts, the people respond obediently, they trust God, and they leave Sinai. And Sinai was a pretty significant place. That's where they saw the glory of the Lord over the tabernacle. It's where they heard his voice. It's where they entered a covenant relationship with them. Do you think maybe they were tempted to stay in Sinai? Let's just stay here. Things were good. Now, God has them on a journey. God has you on a journey, too. We're always stepping into the next thing. We're always stepping closer to God. There could be no doubt that God was traveling with them. They only have to look up in the, in the clouds. And as they begin every day, every sequence when they're moving out, Moses speaks this battle cry, and it really sounds more like a prayer, doesn't it? He's invoking the presence and power of God and God's protection while they move forward. And then every time they stop, he says a prayer invoking the presence of God, giving them rest. God abiding with them. And in that prayer, we see both the severity and the mercy of God, don't we? A God to be feared and a God to be loved. So on this journey, as the Israelites set out, with all the various options for travel conditions, there really were two possibilities, two ways how this thing could have turned out. They could have been a big, vulnerable mass of humanity exposed in a barren, dangerous desert, stateless people, refugees under no one's protection or care. That was one option. But if they followed God's direction, if they lined up God's direction and his plan with their perfect trust and their perfect obedience, they were two and a half million people traveling according to the direction of Almighty God, trusting him completely, obedient to him. They're not a vulnerable mass. They are a traveling sanctuary in the presence of God. And it's like that for us too, when obedience and trust align with the plans and direction of God, there's harmony between us and God, it's a blessed position to be in, we actually experience God's pleasure, and that looks like protection, guidance, mercy, grace, rest, the presence of the God of the universe dwelling with us, his face shining on us. It's a great journey, let's pray. God, you're good. We thank you that you call us to be your people and to be in a relationship with you. We thank you that you don't want disasters for us. You want a blessed journey. So we just pray that we can be people who can move through our lives honoring you in obedience to you, trusting you, stepping only into the direction that you would move us, Lord. We want this for your honor, for your glory, for your praise. In Jesus' name, amen.